you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn to the Old Testament book of Esther, Esther, the fourth chapter. We've been working the last two weeks in the book of Esther. If you get to Psalms, just kind of go back to your left, and you'll find this dear lady in Scripture. Today, we're going to talk about a sermon entitled, Defining Moments, Defining Moments. I did a, a, a search to get a definition of what does it mean. You've heard people say, that was a defining moment in my life. But what does defining moments mean? Well, in looking it up, there were like two different directions of defining moments, but yet they actually dovetail together pretty well. The first definition was this, the character of a person is revealed. In a defining moment, the character of a person is revealed. And this is when they said, this is when I understood if they were a person of integrity. This is when I understood uh, what their character was. That's a defining moment. And it either took you this direction or it took you this direction. Defining moment. The character of a person is revealed. But the second one is this, is it determines all subsequent related occurrences. That's a lot of words, but just write them down. It determines all subsequent related occurrences. Just in regular language, everything that happens afterwards was determined by that particular moment. In that one defining moment, it then made all these subsequent uh, occurrences take place. Uh, Luke Bryan made the comment about defining moments. He said it was September 1st, I believe, 2001, was a defining moment for him when he moved to Nashville, Tennessee. I took the step of faith. I took the risk. I moved to Nashville, Tennessee. And once I did, then all of a sudden everything happened with my career from there. So defining moments, it's both the character, but it also talks about all the events that happen afterward. Now, in just a moment, we're going to look in Esther chapter 4 at a huge defining moment. But when I think about defining moments, the first thing I think about is Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. God's son, born of a virgin, grew up in Nazareth, started his ministry at the age of 30, and for three years began to go out and preach and proclaim a gospel message, a message of forgiveness, a message of the fact that the kingdom of God is at hand, the rule and reign of God. And as he preached, he told people about who God was, and he told people that he was the son of God. And if you want to know what God is like, look at me as the son, and you will know who God is. And in the midst of his preaching, he says that there is only one way to get to God, and that is through Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And a defining moment came in his life when on a Thursday night, eating a Passover meal with his disciples. And when that meal was over, they went up to an area to pray. And while they were praying in this garden, soldiers from Rome came, and he was being betrayed by one of his followers by the name of Judas. And when the soldiers came and they were going to arrest him, one of his disciples takes out a little sword and begins slashing away. And he says, hey, put that aside. You don't need that. He says, I'm telling you what, if I wanted to, I could call out to my father right now and he would bring 12 legions of angels, thousands of angels, and they could clear these guys out like that. But don't do that. Because I have chosen to give my life. You see, what happens in a defining moment, it shows you the character is revealed 
and the character of Jesus Christ as a humble servant was then allowed to be led away, to be beaten within inches of his life, and then to be impaled upon a cross, crucified on a cross, and for six hours to be suspended between heaven and earth, and did all of that because he was taking all the sins of mankind on him and was to be that perfect sacrifice so that we, sinful people separated from God, could then come into a right relationship with God. It was a defining moment when Jesus chose the cross. And then that defining moment, it talks about all these other occurrences happen after that. Three days later, three days later, his father, God, raised him from the dead. And when he did, it was an affirmation that Jesus was the son of God. His death on the cross was everything that we needed. And when he was raised from the dead, it shows that our sins could be forgiven and we could spend eternity with God. That's a defining moment. Now, as powerful as that defining moment was 2,000 years ago, there's another defining moment about 2,500 years ago. It's what we find in the book of Esther. It's about 474 B.C. And there in the Persian kingdom, there's a queen who's a Jew who has not told anyone that she's Jewish because the man who raised her, her cousin, told her not to. But yet, she won the beauty contest, she is the queen, Xerxes is the king, and she has been ruling with him for five years. And then there was this man by the name of Haman that we picked up on last week in chapter 3, who was an evil man, and he was like the number two guy in control. And there was an edict that whenever he walked into the offices or into this large hallway area leading to the palace, that everybody that was there was supposed to bow down to him. But one man would not. His name was Mordecai. And Mordecai was a Jew, and he was not going to give honor to another man and glory to another man that should only be given to God. And so he didn't bow. Well, there was, a, there was about uh, 1,500 years worth of strife or so between these families there, and, and uh, Haman got all upset. And he just wasn't going to take it out on Mordecai. He was going to take it out on every Jew in all 127 provinces that would stretch all the way from about Ethiopia all the way to India. And he says, make an edict that 11 months from today, 11 months from today, we will kill, destroy, annihilate every Jew there is. And that's how chapter 3 ended. When you walk away from chapter 3 after that, it's kind of a depressing story. Because it is said that we're going to take away the life of every Jew that is there. And the Jews, I think they've got nothing going for them. They have no king, they have no army, they have no prophets, they have no priests, they have no temple, they have no sacrifices. They're just a small defenseless minority living in a country that's ruled by a ruthless pagan ruler who has just said, I am going to annihilate every one of you. And if you look at that, it's just hopeless. But there's one thing. If you go back 1,500 years or so before that, there was a man by the name of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 that God taps him on the shoulder and says, Abraham, I'm going to build a great nation through you. And through you and your descendants, you will be a blessing to all the people of all the world. In essence, he says, there's going to come a Messiah. 
that's going to come through your lineage. And so 1,500 years previous to this day, God had made this promise, and they had held on to this promise, the Jewish people, as he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on and on and on and all through David. And this is the promise they held on to. And so even though the Persian king says everybody's going to be wiped out, there's just this promise. There's just that promise. And you see, it seemed like God was hidden, but he wasn't hiding. You see, he just couldn't see him at that time in 474 B.C. You see, he, he wasn't hiding. He was just hidden. And in the background, he was working. The providence of God as his hand was moving over and he was taking these secular events, these ordinary events that were happening and through all of those, his hand was moving and moving and moving to where he would receive the greater glory. Wow. And that's where you pick up in chapter four. And so in chapter four, where you're almost ready to just be depressed, but you realize there's that promise. Something has to happen. Because if all the Jews are wiped out, do you know what that means? God broke his promise, and God went totally against his character of faithfulness and trustworthiness. And I'm not thinking that's going to happen. So let's pick up the story. Chapter 4, verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. And during that day, if you were going to mourn, you took this sackcloth. It was like goat hair. It was an outfit that you put on, just goat hair. And then you take ashes and you put it over your head. And it said he went out in the midst of the city and he just made this loud cry. Because he was so upset about not only him, but all his people that they were going to be annihilated. And in verse 2, it says, he went up to the entrance of the king's gate. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. The king's gate, if you remember last, last Sunday, we talked about that uh, the king's gate represented this large building where commerce would, would take place. And it's like uh, lawyers and court officials would be there and help transact business. And it was this long uh, hallway or, or uh, really kind of a yeah, large hallway, I guess your best deal. And they would do all this business and it would lead right up into the palace. And so... He was getting ready to come in the gate, and they wouldn't let him in there. And the reason is, they said, hey, you can't come in here with sackcloth and ashes. It would be like today, if you went to work, and your clothes were all wrinkled and ratty, and you hadn't shaved, and your hair was messy. Oh, that's kind of normal today, and <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, back in the day when there were dress codes, um, for these guys, there was a dress code, and sackcloth and ashes was not on the dress code. And the reason is, is that the kingdom want a bunch of mourners hanging around near the palace. So he says, you can't come in. So he shows up to work. And when he shows up to work, he can't get into work. But he's out there wailing and, and all upset. Well, word gets back to the queen. Look what it says over here. First of all, in verse 3, it says, in every province, wherever the king's command is decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. It started in Susa, the capital city, and it spread to all 127 provinces. And wherever there were Jewish people, they were doing the same thing. They had sackcloth, they had ashes, they were mourning. Because there's a clock ticking. 11 months from today, you will be killed and annihilated, and there's nowhere you can run. 
In verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and they told her, the queen was deeply distressed. And so she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Now, she's in the palace. She's living a queen's life. She doesn't know anything about this edict. But when she gets word that Mordecai, her cousin, is all distressed here, she's thinking, okay, let's get him a change of clothes, clean up, get you a change of clothes, get into work, kind of bow up, and things going to be better. You just had a rough night last night. And he refused the clothes. Well, when that happened, she says, there's something up. So verse 5, then, Easter, then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and he ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was and why it was. And so he went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. So this eunuch goes out and he says, hey, the queen wants to know what the deal is. So they're standing right there in the marketplace. He says, tell me what's going on. And he did, verse 7. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. And he also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther. Man, he had it all. He said, I got a copy of the edict and I'm telling you what Haman's going to do. Haman said he's going to have all the Jews killed in 11 months. And you know what he did? He took 10,000 talents of silver and he put it into the treasury. And we talked about that in chapter 3. And he says, he's paid money for this to happen. The king has agreed with it. And everything's getting ready to come down in 11 months. This is why I'm standing out here. This is why I'm crying. And this is why I'm so upset. But then he says this. Look at the end of that verse. He says, and show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Of her people. She's Jewish. She's never told anyone she's Jewish. The king didn't even know she's Jewish. They've been married for five years. She is going to have to go and show her identity and plead for her people. I've got all the goods. This is it. If you can take that and go to her. So, Look what happens. The eunuch goes over there. And Hathak went and he told Esther what Mordecai had said. So she listens to the whole conversation. Listens to exactly to what he has said. And after, um, after the conversation, this is her response. And it's found in verse 10. In verse 10, it says, Esther spoke to him and said, You go to Mordecai and say this. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. Boy, you think it's tough to get in touch with your boss. Man, this is tough. Only way you can have a meeting with the king is you have got to get word to one of his messengers, write it out for them, and say, hey, I'd like to get with the king. Can you put me on his calendar? Then one of those messengers will go to the king, and they present it to the king, and then he makes a decision as to yes or no, and then where can we put it on the calendar? If you ever got so bold as to say, hey, I think he can work me in. If you think that, and you walk by and go into the inner court and say, yo, Xerxes, got a few minutes? 
the law says you'll be put to death. Do you feel lucky? So no one wants to do that. And if you do look at him and he sees you and you do not have an appointment, he's got this golden scepter. If he puts the golden scepter out, it's like, you're okay. If he doesn't put the golden scepter out, hope your will's in order uh, because it's over for you. This is the protocol they had. And she's telling the eunuch, you explain to Mordecai, this is the protocol. Now, as Mordecai is reading this, his first thought is, well, gosh, you're the queen. You should be able to go in there. That, that should be easy. But look what she put at the very end. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. It's been 30 days, and she's never been, she hadn't even been with the king. A whole month. He's never called her to come in. And so in her mind... She's probably thinking, he's lost that love and feeling. Now, she knows he's trying hard not to show it. Because he hadn't called her in 30 days. But baby, she knows it. He's lost that love and feeling. Whoa. He's lost that love and feeling. And it's gone, gone, gone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Mm -mm, mm -mm. (laughs) That's Esther the musical. We won't go there, all right? So, So there is this feeling of, you know, 30 days. He hadn't even asked me to come see him in 30 days, so I am not in the best position to take a chance that I could walk in and see the king. He said, well, why don't you just send him an invitation? Say, hey, I need to meet with you. Well, I'm guessing that any time you want to meet with a king, you've got to explain the purpose for meeting. Is she going to write on a note? Oh, by the way, I hadn't told you, but uh, I'm a Jew, and the Jews are getting ready to get killed. She can't put that in a note. That's not going to work. So she's kind of between a rock and a hard place, and so she sends the note back to Mordecai. She says, hey, he can call for me in 30 days, so uh, there's just no way I can go in there. I'm just sorry. It's not going to work. Mordecai gets the note. Wow. The next two verses, this is the climax of the whole book. And in most times in the book of Esther, these are the ones that everybody jumps to, and they should. It's just incredible. Because it says in verse 13, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. He says, listen, when this edict comes out, I know I told you not to tell them that you were a Jew, but I can guarantee in 11 months when they're killing every Jew, they're going to find out. And when they find out, your life's going to be taken also. I don't think you can just hide out in the palace while the rest of your people are killed. And then he gets to verse 14. For if you keep silence at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Whoa. He says, listen, relief and deliverance is going to rise from another place. Somewhere else, this is going to happen. He says, you remember the promise we talked about? What Mordecai was doing was he was saying, 
I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the promises of God. I believe in the covenant that God has with our people. And when God says that through that lineage, there will be a blessing to all the nations, I believe that. When the prophets say there will be a Messiah and it will come through the lineage, I believe that. And so what's going to happen is that we may perish, you may perish, I may perish, but not all of us are going to perish because God's going to step up. He's sovereign. He will keep his promise. He will do this for Israel, and it will lead to the birth of his son, Jesus, our Messiah and Savior. Now, I just want to take, I'm just going to take a step over for just a moment. Because we read this and we say, yes, there's that covenant promise and we can see that. Any of us that have read the Bible realize of what's supposed to happen. But then when we look at today and we say, where does this give me comfort today? Where this gives us comfort today is that when Jesus was talking to his disciples and he asked them the question, he says, who do people say that I am? And different people, oh, some think you're this prophet, some think you're John the Baptist, uh, come back from the dead. He looked at Peter and said, Peter, who do you say that I am? And look what it says in Matthew 16, 16. And in Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus came back in verse 18 and says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, this rock, this commitment that you made, that, that I am the Christ, the son of God, because of that commitment, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He just made a promise to Peter that says, the church is based on Christ, making a commitment that, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. And the church, it will be attacked left and right, but the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What that means is no political party will prevail against it. No Supreme Court will prevail against it. No ungodly culture will prevail against it. No terrorists shall prevail against it. The church, I'm not talking about the physical buildings. I'm talking about the church itself, the bride of Christ will be here when Jesus returns to get his bride, okay? And so can I get amen? Amen. And so while we can sit there and say, man, Mordecai, he had so much faith in the promises of God, we need to have that same stance to so say we have so much faith in the promises of God. And God says the church will be here. We'll go through difficult times. There will be persecution. But I'm telling you, the church will always be here. Because Jesus is going to come back and get his bride. And, um, and so we need to keep hope and we need to keep moving forward in living our lives for him. And don't get down, okay? The church will still be here. So here's the question. God's going to deliver. The question is who or what will he use to deliver the Jews? He's already told Esther, hey, God's going to raise up somebody. And I go back to that, that verse where it says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise from another place. That's pretty bold. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance, it'll come from another place. God's going to keep his promises. So let me ask you this question. Do you ever wonder why God raises up some people through whom he does great things? You ever thought about that? You see these things or you read about these things, you say, why didn't God ever do that for me? Why didn't I ever get to be the person that, that God did that? And maybe say you ask that question, God, why don't you use me like that? Well, maybe God raised up someone because you just weren't ready. You weren't faithful in the small things, thus he's not going to entrust you with bigger things. 
Maybe you were just not willing to take the risk. Maybe you weren't willing to sacrifice. Maybe you weren't willing to let go of possessions or people or your position or your pride. And when you didn't do that, he just passed over you. And he says, I've got to find someone else. God is going to accomplish his purpose and his will. And as his providence, as he moves these pieces around the chessboard, if you want to be used by him for his purposes, to give him the opportunity to display his greater glory, you need to be faithful, you need to be obedient to his word, and you need to put your yes on the table to where it says, whatever it is you ask of me, Lord, the answer is yes. And I put my yes on the table. And when you put your yes on the table, then you're going to find that God is going to say, hey, I got someone that I can use. And this question was asked, who is God going to use? You know, I was thinking, what happened is we get to heaven and God shows you all the times he wanted to use you for kingdom purposes, but he was unable to. That'd be kind of sad, wouldn't it? If he just put, put an arm around me and said, Man, he had a great life, but can I just show you, give you a hint of really what I wanted to do through you? And when he does that and he shows the things that he could have done through you, not to give you glory, but to give him even greater glory, and it may not have been anything public. It could have been some small, it could have been a one-on-one conversation. It could have been something in an obscure town, in an obscure location to where he would receive greater glory. And when he shows that, the reason why you didn't do that is not because you were too short or too tall or you're too fat or too skinny or because you were too smart or not smart enough or because you didn't have any skills or had too many skills. And it wasn't because you were too quiet or too talkative and it wasn't because of your family history or your medical history. It was just because you were not faithful and you were not obedient to his word and you were not willing to say, God, use me. Because he will find someone to use so that he can get a greater glory. And that's what Mordecai is saying to Esther. Listen, if it's not you, it's going to be somebody else. And so he presents this to Esther. And he says this question. Yet who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Wow. That's the climax verse of all the book of Esther. Who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, when she reads that, she's got to think, man, how did I ever get here? She was a Jewish orphan girl living in the city, being raised by a cousin. She had no social standing. I mean, she, she, she was just a normal person, really kind of lower on the food chain. And yet they had this beauty contest, and she saw everybody that met her had favor. She had favor with this person, favor with that person. She goes to the king. She got favor with the king. And all of a sudden now she's sitting, and here she is. She's the queen. She's the queen of the most powerful empire in the world at that time. There have got to be times when she's sitting around going, how did I get this? I mean, it's unbelievable. And Mordecai is saying, Esther, have you ever thought that all of these things that happen put you in this particular position for this moment. You are the only one who has access to the king. You're the only one who has the power and the authority to get this changed from an earthly standpoint. You're it. You're it. 
Now, you need to understand, we talk about God's providence and talk about how God, that unseen hand, to, to where God is hidden but he's not hiding. And he's moving different things through different ordinary events that happen. As he's moving all these things around, that does not mean that we just sit back and watch the show. No. Divine providence does not negate the responsibility of people to act with courage and resolve when circumstances demand it. And so he's looking for us, for individuals that will step up and say, put me in, I'm ready to play. Defining moments. But who knows if you've come to your school for a time such as this. But who knows if you're a member of a team for a time such as this. Who knows if you're in an elected position for a time such as this. Who knows if you've been placed in that work group or in that particular company for a time such as this? Who knows if you've been placed in that neighborhood for a time such as this? See, it's a question we all need to ask. It's a defining moment. There'll be things that will come up and they'll say, maybe you've been put here for a time such as this. So, as we are ready to wrap up, I want you to write these things down. It's really quick. Defining moments. Number one, <laughs> I really want you to write this one down. It's a little long, write it down. The crazier the path, the more heightened your awareness of a forthcoming defining moment. The crazier the path, the more heightened your awareness of a forthcoming defining moment. You know what that means? God has gone, has really gone to some trouble to get you in this position. So don't waste his preparation. When you look back and you say, how did I get here? And you begin to map it all out and you say, this was crazy. I have no idea how I got this job. I have no idea how I made this team. I have no idea how I got this promotion, whatever it is. When you're sitting there looking at it and you're saying, man, this is crazy. And some of you as, as, as young singles or so where you went through college and you got a major and then unbelievably then, or maybe something came to you that was completely outside your major and then, and then you think about it and all of a sudden you've got this job and you're in this office, you work around these people and you kind of laugh because you look back and you said, you know, about two or three years ago when I was in college, I would have never guessed that I would have had this position. Guess what? There's a reason why. And the crazier the path, the more heightened your awareness of a forthcoming defining moment. Pastors sometimes give you homework assignments. Usually they're real spiritual. <laughs> I'm your pastor, so let me give you an assignment. <laughs> Go to the movies. Are you ready? Uh, it's a great movie. It's called Greater. And uh, it's a movie that you need to see. It's a true story. True story about a guy with Division Three talent who wanted to walk on to a Division One football team. And by the decisions that he made and the life that he lived, He's left a legacy that continues through high schools all over this nation. Really? Yeah. Got to go see the movie. It was a defining moment. A defining moment in a person's life. And he understood why God put him there. So listen. All right. Number two is this. Engage in spiritual preparation before you proceed. Engage in spiritual preparation before you proceed. Here's Esther. This is her response. Her response starts in verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, not three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast. 
as you do. All right. Whenever you see fasting, that also means praying. Okay. So we're going to pray and fast, get all the Jews in Susa to pray and fast. The ladies that are with me, we're going to pray and fast on my behalf. And she says, then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. If I perish, I perish. You engage in spiritual preparation. That means, she says, there's going to be a time of prayer and fasting. We're not going to eat anything for three days, and we're just going to pray, and we're going to seek God's face. And they're going to be praying for Esther, that she will have courage, that she'll have wisdom. We pray for timing, that it'll be right, and that God will direct her as to the words that she needs to say. Let's pray for that. Let's pray for the king. Let's pray that his heart will be open. Let's pray that he will give her grace and favor when she stands there and, uh, and tries to get that appointment with him. Let's pray these things. And so for three days, that's what they did. So we want to engage in spiritual preparation before you proceed. Always do that. When there's a big defining moment, you pray. You get others to pray. You humble yourselves and say, man, help me. I'm getting ready to, to take this step. Going to share my faith with this person. Going to make a stand over here. Whatever it is, get people to pray with you. And then she says, I will go to the king. If I perish, I perish. And number three is this, proceed in faith or be passed over. Proceed in faith or be passed over. That is my greatest fear in life, being passed over. I just don't want it to happen. I just do not want to be that guy that when I get to heaven, God puts his arm and says, man, I needed someone. You were right there. But you weren't ready. You weren't willing. So I had to go over, so over this way, over here. Man, I don't want to be passed over, folks. I hope you feel that way too. You say, you know what? I want to proceed in faith. God, I believe this is what you're leading me to. And you'll either do that or you'll be passed over. Well, guess what she does? She steps into it. You get to chapter 5. You get to chapter 5, verse 1. She's getting ready to step up to the king. And she comes into that inner court. Now, I'm just going to tell you, folks, this is, this is me speaking, but I think this is pretty truthful. I believe... She got dolled up like she hadn't been dolled up in 30 days, okay? Now, every one of you know there's that one outfit you've got that you really look good in, don't you? Choir, even you, you know, yeah. I mean, you know it, don't you? It's in your mind right now, right now. If we took a survey and said, okay, tell me what the outfit is, woo, you could describe it. If you're married, your husband could probably describe it. Whoa, when she wears that outfit, yes, yeah. And then you know your husband, woo, he's looking good when he's wearing that. That's what she's doing. She got the best outfit on, she's fixed up, and she says, I got one shot at this. And so she goes by, tries to catch his eye. And you know what? That love and feeling's coming back. Yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. He, he's kind of fired up. He said, whoa, you're looking good, Esther. And he puts out the scepter. And come on in. And then as kings like to brag, tell me what it is you want. I'll give you up to half of my kingdom on that. And she said, well, I really don't want half the kingdom. Let me tell you what I'd like to do. I'm going to have a banquet tonight. And I'd like for you and Haman to come to the banquet. Just the three of us to have a banquet. Oh, that's easy enough. Yeah, we'll do that. I'll call Haman. We'll be over here. We'll have a banquet. So you know what she does? She has a banquet. She brings them in. They have the banquet. They eat. They have a great time. A lot of wonderful discussion. And then the king looks at her at the end of the banquet and says, Esther, so tell me, what is it that you want? I'll give you up to half my kingdom. What do you want? And as only a woman can do, she says, well, 
let's have another banquet tomorrow. <laughs> what? Yeah, let's have another banquet. And we're going to do another one tomorrow, and then I'll tell you. This is where the fourth point is. Rely on God to guide you throughout the process. Rely on God to guide you throughout the process. You know what that means? You read commentators and everyone says what they think, and I feel too. She just didn't feel the timing was right. You know, anytime you get ready to to make an ask of someone of something, you got to make sure the timing's just right. And they had the dinner. It was all planned. And she said, there's just something doesn't feel right. I'm going to say that what she's done, she's relied on God that got her completely through the process. And when she prayed and fasted, it is God, you let me know my best timing. And I believe God's spirit spoke to her and said, not today. Let's wait till tomorrow. And see, you're going to come to me and say, well, Danny, where do you get that? Is that a stretch? Not at all. Wait till you see chapter six. And that's going to be two weeks from now, okay? But when you see chapter six, it all makes sense. That God said, oh, man, not tonight, not tonight. No, no, no. Let's go one more night. And what he did was he guided her through that whole process. Defining moments, folks. It can start today. Your defining moment can start today with you settling that matter of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you know if you have never asked him to come into your heart, you can settle today where you will spend eternity. That's a major decision. And the other thing that will happen is that when you settle that today, you have just entered into a relationship with your creator who created you for a purpose and will then begin to unfold his ways to you and give you guidance and direction so that you can live a life that would bring the greatest honor and glory to God the Father, the one who gave his son to die for your sins and the one who created you and will take you to heaven when you die. Wow. And for others here who've already made that decision for Christ, today could be that defining moment to where as you leave this church today, you take that yes and you just place it on the table and say, God, I never want to be passed over. My answer is yes. Whatever you want me to do, I'm willing to do it. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for a moment. Heavenly Father, Today, I pray for those who've never asked Jesus to come into their heart. And if there are those here today, you've got your heads bowed and, and you know you're in that position. You say, I'd love to do that today. I want to lead you in a prayer. I don't want you to have to pray it out loud. This is between you and the Father. And you just pray to him and say, dear Lord Jesus, for my sins. And I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that my sins have separated me from you. And I want to come into a right relationship with you. And ask you to come into my life. Cleanse me from all of my sin. And make me your child. And then, Lord, I want to walk with you and serve you for the rest of my life. If you prayed a prayer like that at that moment, that means that God answered that prayer and he stepped inside your heart, inside your life. And so, Lord, I pray you touch the lives of those who are seeking you and that you're drawing to yourself. And then I pray for all of us, others, that have made those decisions for Christ, that we'll keep our eyes and ears open to the defining moments of life. And may we put the yes on the table and say, God, whatever it is you want me to do, I'm willing to do it. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.